Hi, you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. It is Sunday, July the 25th, 2021. Thanks for being along. We've had a busy week this week. We had a great first of the week. You know, just did a lot of walking, a lot of getting out and doing things, going to the gym, hanging out, seeing my buddies and all that kind of stuff. And then Friday, we we were trying to finish and close the loop on Will's traumatic brain injury from uh, March the 21st. He's he's 28 years old and had this horrible injury that that he should have died from. The uh, neurosurgeon fully expected him to die. And all along the way, the trauma doctors did, as well as the um, nurses that we had and so but the lord did a miraculous thing and healed him and so you have to wait for a time after surgery they take out they took out skull flaps on both sides and skull flaps are just pieces of skull that they cut out and then save they froze them and they put those back yesterday and so we were at the hospital almost i mean literally all day we we left here at seven well we got there just before seven o'clock in the morning and then stayed until 11 o'clock last night um, everything was late all day long, and so we did a lot of sitting, and I'm not accustomed to sitting that much in a day, and so I was going crazy while we were at the hospital, and uh, but and I was really nervous and anxious about this because the first, much more so than the than the original, because the original had no time to prepare for it, right? I mean, just we got up that morning and found him uh, after this fall had happened. And so we didn't have any time to prepare for it, so we were just thrown into the midst of it. And But we, after the first day, Suzanne and I had an absolute certainty that we heard from the Lord that, that we were going to be, he was going to be fine, and he's going to make a full recovery. The only thing that really shocked us, and still is shocking, uh, is that, he, that it happened so quickly. We, we had no expectation. We, we thought this would be a whole year process sort of a thing, um, but we fully expected it to end, you know, exactly right. And so the fact that, that we are beginning to end pretty much in, in four months just is beyond our belief, much less anybody else's. I mean, the neurosurgeon calls it a miraculous recovery. Every single person who was involved in his care considers it to be an absolute miracle, and it was. And so we knew, like I said, from that first day, Suzanne and I had absolute certainty and faith that this was going to happen because we believed God had spoken to us. But we've recovered so much during that period of time. Uh, not just Will's physical um, abilities and his, his mental abilities and all that, but, but he and I had a strained relationship. That's probably the best way to say it, um, because I didn't feel like he was um, living into his potential, I guess is the best way to say it. There's some other stuff that, that went into that as well. He, he had three bouts of anorexia and, and a whole lot of other stuff going on too. But, um, but anyway, so it, was, it strained our relationship. And so what has happened in, in this last couple of months since he came home from rehab is is that, that he and I have spent a, an enormous amount of time together, probably more so in the last two months than we did in, in three or four years prior to that. So it, it's been that big a deal. And so to think about coming through all of that and then anything going wrong yesterday and, and setting back any of that was really deeply troubling to me. And it's a measure of how much God has healed and restored our relationship, the, the, the struggle that I had and, and the anxiety that I had. Now, Will didn't have any anxiety at all. I mean, how many people do you know that getting ready to have brain surgery and they hook you up and his pulse was 60, 60 to 62 the whole time. And then he slept for two hours. And the only reason he didn't sleep solidly for two hours is because when he would sleep, his pulse rate would go below 50. And when it did, it would set an alarm off. And so it, it's just this, it, it was unbelievable how peaceful he was about this and how confident he was about this surgery. So he's doing great. 
we went to see him this morning. We couldn't see him last night because it just got later and later and later, and they didn't get him into a room. There's all kinds of issues with rooms being available on the right floor and all that kind of stuff. So it took a long time. Uh, and so we didn't get to see him last night. So we were anxious to see him this morning. Before we went, he had already posted on Facebook, I'm alive. So we we knew he must be doing pretty well. But but he's 100%. I mean, he recovered from this, and, and there was no neurological issues. There's no physical issues. I mean, he, he was able to do everything, and it was fully engaged and talking and everything else. It was fantastic. Um, you know, it's something I wish had never happened, certainly. But, but, it's, but it's brought a lot of healing into our relationship, and so... What I want to talk about today has sort of to do with, with um, our inability to manage the, the thing that we believe that we can manage, which is to, to be in the right place at the right time, mostly because we don't know what the right place or the right time is. And so how do we, how do we kind of deal with that? You've all had every single person I've ever met, I'm sure, if you're over like five, has had the experience of, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened here at this time. You know, would you run into somebody that you hadn't seen in a million years or whatever? And you just happen to have been in the right place at the right time or whatever that story or multiple stories probably are that you can recount of, of you will not believe what happened today. So it, it's it, it's that thing, that serendipitous moment that, that I'm kind of getting at here. But there's more to it than just those little serendipitous moments of running into people out of the blue. That, what, I'm, what I want to argue for is, is that we can't manage this right place, right time thing. We don't, we don't have the ability to do that because we can't know. And it's serendipitous is the thing that's really important. But what I'm, what I'm going to argue for is, is that we can avoid being in the wrong places. We can absolutely avoid being in the wrong places. I, I've certainly been in wrong places at wrong times in my life. I, I, and, and it's because of bad decisions that I made to be in the wrong place, places I shouldn't have been um, at that time. Um, but what I'm arguing for is, is that we could have more serendipitous moments if, if we fully immersed ourselves in life. And the only way to do that is fully immerse ourselves in prayer, speaking to God and hearing from God and being where God wants us to be at any given time, allowing ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit. And it requires us to intentionally be available to God all the time and to expect and believe that every single encounter that we have with another human being is fraught with enormous potential and possibility, for good or ill. But but it requires us to show up, and it requires us, I think we would have those serendipitous moments more often if we were fully present. If we were fully present to God and then fully present to others, I'm positive, without any question in my mind, that, that great things are possible if we live lives intentionally, and if we live them um, in, in such a way that, that we expect great things. If we expect great things um, by following God's will and being in the right place at the right when He wants us to be there, then we'll see more of those serendipitous moments and, and we'll experience more of God's presence. And it will encourage us to want more. And so it'll encourage us to pray more. It'll encourage us to expect more. And that that's the point of today's sermon. So I'm giving you the point on the front end. And now let's go look at the scriptures and see what we got and see how we got there. So uh, what I'm going to start with is a second Samuel lesson. And, and it's... Um, 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 15, it's David and Bathsheba. So it's like David's wrong place, wrong time, all the way through this thing. Listen to this, this story, and I'm going to point out what could have been. <laughs> now, it works out fine because we get Solomon from Bathsheba. So in the end, it all works out. But there's a lot of pain and a lot of death before you ever get to that. So what we got is in the spring of the year, the times when kings go out to battle, and David's the king. David sent Joab. And his servants 
with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, the capital. But David remained at Jerusalem. The kings go out to battle, but David sent Joab and David stayed at home. So David's in the wrong place, period. End of sentence. David's in the wrong place. And we can say that for multiple reasons. One is it tells us that when the kings went out to battle, David remained in Jerusalem and sent somebody else to do the work. But the other thing we know is is that, that not too long before this, when David becomes king of all Israel, after he has served as king of Judah for a season of time, he then becomes king of Israel. And, and the way we know that where David should be was in battle was when the, when the other 11 tribes come, they said, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led us out and led us in. And so David's the one who led them into battle and led them out of battle. And they said, even when Saul was king, even though he was the king, we followed you, David. You really were the acting king in our eyes and in our minds and in our hearts, even at that time. So what we know is it was important to the people of Israel that David led them in and out of battle. And, and David doesn't. He sends Joab to do that work. Nope, you can't send your deputy to do that, David. It's the time kings go out to battle. You are the figurehead. You are the leader of these people. You're the one who gives them confidence and courage. And so, so David stayed at home. And it happened that late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, he was just laying around, right? Um, and he was walking out on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. Well, David's home with the women because the men are all out of battle. He sees a woman bathing. And, and what should he have done when he saw the naked woman who we now find out is very beautiful? What should David have done? He should have averted his eyes and gone back in, shouldn't he? Yet what did he do? David sent and inquired about the woman. David, David, danger. You're, you're, you're walking into a bad place, David. You've got to stop. No, no, do not send people to inquire about this woman. And then she's told, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That should have been the end. The wife of anybody should have ended this idea in David's mind but David is so obsessed with this woman he's got to have her David can't be dissuaded David has a one-track mind and he cannot be turned away from that so he sends messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her David David I mean he is he is taking bold significant action to make this happen David should have run from this David should have turned away, never, ever should have been in this situation. And yet he, he sends messengers, took her, she came to him, he lay with her. I mean, these are all active verbs, every single one of these things. David remained at Jerusalem. Even that's an active remaining in Jerusalem. David made a decision. He was going to stay there. It's not like David was hurt or sick or whatever. No, he made a decision to stay. He made a decision. He could have seen her accidentally, but that could have been the end of it. But instead, no, he sent and inquired about her. And now he sends, takes, <coughs> and lays with her. And what happened? She became pregnant. So she sends word later that this has happened. And David says, send, he sends word to Joab and says, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Uriah sends, your, uh, Joab sends Uriah to David and, and Uriah came to him. And David asked, Hey, how's Joab doing, and how the people doing, and how the war going? Really? David? I mean, this is Uriah, right? What, you sent to the front? 
to have me come here and answer those questions? I mean, it, it didn't have to be somebody who was an important soldier to come and, and do that. We don't even know each other, David, and you're asking me, oh, how's Joab doing? How the, you know, how the people doing? How's the war going? Really? There have been no messengers coming back and telling you this, David? So Uriah, whatever, right? So David then says, well, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? But Uriah went out and he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and didn't go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And listen to this man. This man is a righteous man. He may be a Hittite, but he's a righteous man. He's a loyal man. He's a faithful man. Here's his answer. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and his servants and my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I'll not do this thing. This man is telling David how to live, how to be faithful, how to be loyal to his people. All these other people are struggling, David. They're, they're living in booths. They're, they're living in an open field. And here you are in the palace that Hiram of Tyre built for you, the palace that, that you luxuriate in and, and that prompted you to offer to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord told you no. But David's so happy in his house now that he no longer is really aligned with the rest of Israel. And so, so Uriah is. Uriah said, no, 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 all these other people are doing that. I'm not going to allow myself the luxury of all that. And he's not saying that with judgment, but David should have heard it as judgment. I, I'm staying at home and, well, lying with your wife. And so David says, stay here today and tomorrow I'll send you back. So what does he do? He has a party and he gets him drunk, expecting that if I get Uriah drunk, he'll go down and sleep with his wife, and then I'll have plausible deniability over the fatherhood of this child. And he, But he didn't do it. <laughs> he says he got him drunk. So that part worked, but but he wouldn't go. And so now David's mad. So he sends a letter to Joab by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. Put him right in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. Leave him alone. Then he may be struck down and die. He sent that. He wrote that. Gave it to Uriah and sent it. Why? Because he could trust Uriah to do the right thing and not read it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable how loyal and faithful a man this is. What a good and righteous man Uriah is. And David is having him killed. To cover what? David's sin. Period. But it all starts with David being in the wrong place at the wrong time. By choice. And so what ends up happening is Uriah dies. But not just Uriah. The other soldiers too. Who he sends to the front. And to fight in the wrong place. And then the child dies. So it, all of this. It's because of David's sin, and David wouldn't repent. David wouldn't repent until all this is over, and Nathan comes to him and gives him the story of the little ewe lamb, the poor man. But now, for now, David's deep, deep, deep in the woods here. He, he has committed a horrible sin already and tried to cover it up, and now he's going to make it worse. It, it's, it's unbelievable. But, it, but it's all a consequence of David being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was in a place God didn't intend for him to be. But, but David was, was sitting in the lap of luxury. And he didn't want to go to battle with those people because that's, that's hard. That's a rough life. You might get killed. You might get hurt. You might, you know, experience 
hunger and whatever else. But but David, no, he's fat and happy. It's the biggest problem, you know. That's the biggest problem we all have, I think, is we get fat and happy, and we're no longer really interested in all that other stuff. We we we're retired at one level or another even if we're working full-time as long as we're happy with that and we're making a lot of money then we're fat and happy and we might as well be retired we're retired from the lord's service because we focused everything we have on on those things of earth and here in in the gospel lessons john 6 1 to 21 jesus goes away to the other side of the sea of galilee which is the sea of tiberias and a large crowd was following because they saw the signs that he was doing and they wanted to see more of that so jesus goes up onto a mountain and he has um, sits down with his disciples. And, and then we're told the feast of the Jews, the Passover was at hand. That explains the crowd. That explains the crowd without a home because they're, they're pilgrims. And, and they've started following Jesus because of what they've heard of him back home. And now they've seen this guy and they want to stay with him. And so they follow him. And so Jesus looks after he's gone up there with his disciples and he sees a large crowd coming to him. And Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to get bread so that these people may eat? He says he said this to test him, for he, he, he knew what he was going to do. It's a rhetorical question, is the, what they could say. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to even get a little. And we could spend everything we got, and, and we wouldn't feed them. You know, essentially, we'd give them communion. <laughs> and one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So at least... You know, at some level, Andrew, is that sarcasm? What does he mean by that? Why, why does he say there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish? And then Jesus says, have everybody sit down. And there was a lot of grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So this is communion language. And also the fish, as much as they wanted from those two fish. When they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets, one for each disciple, with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. They didn't take up fish, too. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. Who is this prophet that's to come into the world? Well, to get the answer to that, then you go to um, Deuteronomy 18. And that's where you find this prophet that Moses said that in, in latter days, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me from among your fellows. So he's going to be a Jew and, and there's to listen to him specifically. That's exactly what what he does say is, is that that you're going to raise up this prophet. And you're to listen to him. And you remember at the transfiguration, that's exactly what God says. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what he's saying in, in that context is forget about what you think you know from Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. Listen to Jesus. He'll explain all that to you. He's not saying that none of that matters. No, he's put them here on the Mount of Transfiguration in, in order to say these they do matter. But, but this is my beloved son, as opposed to the law and the prophets. As much as and important as Moses and Elijah are, that this is my son. Listen to him. Like I said, he's not going to say something different, but because but Jesus says, doesn't it say in the prophets that the Son of Man has to suffer and die and on the third day rose again? He, he's explaining things to them in a way that they have not understood them before because nobody understood that before Jesus talked about it because they were confused when he began to explain things that way. And so it, Jesus, and the Lord says through 
Moses, whoever will not listen to my words that he, this prophet, shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I've not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet will die. And then you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that's a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need to be afraid of him. So when Jesus comes back from the dead, then, then he's the fulfilling exactly what he said. And, and that's the greatest fulfillment of prophecy there ever could have been, is that three days later, he's going to be resurrected from the dead. I mean, nothing like that's ever happened before or since. And so this is the prophet that they think Jesus is. And, and why do they think he's the prophet like Moses? Well, because he's just fed them miraculously. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to make him king. And so Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself because he knew what they were going to do. And so then the disciples go that evening to, down to the sea and they get into a boat and they start to go over to Capernaum. It was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. They were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So these people in this story are in the right place at the right time. They're doing the right thing because they're following the law. They're pilgrims going to the feast of Passover at Jerusalem as they were instructed to do in the law to make that pilgrim feast. If you're close enough, you're supposed to go. So they were obedient to what the Lord had said, so they were in the right place. They were on the road to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then, because they were in the right place, they had an encounter with Jesus. And because they saw in him that he was the fulfillment of a promise that had come through Moses, they followed him wherever he went. So they were in the right place because they had made settled decisions on faith to do so. They had the faith to do exactly what the law commanded. It wasn't fear. It was faith that caused them to go to Jerusalem for this pilgrim festival. And then they followed Jesus because they had faith in him because of the signs that they saw. And they believed the signs pointed in the right direction. And here they come to the conclusion that they, they point in this specific direction, that it's the prophet that's been raised up. And, and that's exactly what the Samaritan woman says about her own faith. We know that one will come, and when he does, we'll listen to him, and he'll explain everything to us. And she's talking about this prophet like Moses, because that's what they're looking for in Samaria, because they only have the first five books of Moses. They don't have the prophets, so that they can't get as confused. They're looking for a prophet to come who will explain everything to them. And so that's what these people are looking for as well. And they believe that he's the prophet because the sign of the feeding like the manna. And so that's why they do that. And then they're going to make him king because he's the fulfillment of that, um, of that prophecy that Moses gave. And, and they believe they finally found that one. And so they were in the right place at the right time because of faith. And because they were following faith, they ended up with an encounter with Jesus. And, and it changes everything. And so then what you get is the disciples, Jesus sends them away, and then he stays where he is, and then they, because they're doing what Jesus commanded, in faith, they see him walk on the water. And they get a higher glimpse of who he is, beyond the idea that he is the prophet that Moses talked about. No, he's something more than that. And so 
because they were in the right place. They were following Jesus, and then they were obedient to what Jesus had told them to do, which is go on without him. They were able to see this too. And so it's mostly, they just showed up. They did the things that they had done a million times, right? They'd been in boats on that sea a million times. But because now they're doing it in obedience to Jesus' commandment, they're in the right place at the right time to see something more, to get a greater revelation of Jesus. And the same with those pilgrims who were there that day. The, the ultimate guy who's in the right place at the, <clears throat> at the right time, not because he's being obedient, but because he was exactly where God wanted him to be, who had the, the, the extraordinary uh-oh moment, is Paul, right? Paul is persecuting the church. He believes that he's doing so. He believes that honestly because he's come to the conclusion Jesus is not the Messiah, that it's a false thing that's leading people astray. And so he's, he has zeal for the Lord, but he has no revelation. But he's pursuing what he's doing in faith, And because he's pursuing what he's doing in faith, the Lord meets him there on the road to Damascus and strikes him blind and speaks from the heavens. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm sorry, who are you, says Saul? I am Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. This could go very badly. Very, very badly. But instead, what does he receive? He receives mercy. He receives grace, and he receives an apostleship. So even though his motives were completely wrong, his motives were based on he believed that he was doing the Lord's work. And so God met him there and corrected him and stopped him in his tracks because he loved Saul. And more than that, he loved the church. And he protected it from Saul's menace. But Saul, Paul, knew the rest of his life that he had received great grace. God didn't change his name. I know I've said this before, but I feel like I always need to because you might not have heard it. But his name, his, his Jewish name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. And the reason <laughs> is because Saul in uh, Latin and Greek sounds like a little boy who swishes his rear end when he walks. And his mission was to the Gentiles. You, you don't want to go and say, I'm Saul. <laughs> you want to say, I'm Paul. So his, his, his Greco-Roman name was Paul. So God didn't change his name. That's not what happened. <clears throat> he, he did it for mission purposes. Um, and so here he writes the Ephesian church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's a guy who knew that he was saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He didn't have anything to add to that. He just had a job to do. He didn't, he didn't bring anything to the table. In fact, all he brought to the table at that moment that he was saved was sin. That's all he had. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He wasn't seeking to be saved. He was seeking to persecute those who were. And instead he received grace and an apostleship. God forgave this, this enormous sin in his life, just like the way he forgave the sin in David's life here, which is huge, almost beyond belief, that God could forgive a man who had an adultery, adulterous relationship with another man's wife, and then did everything he could to 
make sure that man died and in a process committed multiple murders because the, the soldiers who were with Uriah were killed as well. That's all forgiven. David's restored. David's restored to kingship. He didn't have to step down for a season of time. He did at some level when Absalom's revolt happened. But, but David, David just kept on being king after he repented. Now, the Lord told him, because you've done this thing, you're going to pay a price for it. There's never going to be peace in your house. And the child isn't going to live. But, but David persevered. And David knew something about the forgiveness and the love of God in the same way that Paul knows about forgiveness and the love of God, in the same way that Peter does, because Peter denied him three times on that last night. So here Paul... And he, he's speaking to these Ephesian elders. He's speaking to the to the church there. And, and those Ephesian elders, they had come completely out of paganism. But but he calls them brothers. And, and he, he pulls them in. And he says, I just want you to know the riches of his glory. I want you to have power through his spirit in your inner being. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's not words for it. There's not even understanding enough to know how much he loves. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants that for people who had formerly been enemies. He wants that for people that, that, that he would have referred to previously as that uncircumcised lot over there. That he would have looked on with a certain amount of disdain except for his commercial interests he wants them to have exactly what he has and to know more and more and more. And he has seen in his own eyes and in his own life the love of God. He has experienced it. And all he wants is for the rest of the world to know that as well. What I'm saying to you is, is that we have the opportunity every single day to offer every moment of our lives to him. To live with eyes and hearts wide open and to be present to him at all times. Those serendipitous moments can happen more and more often if we live, I think, intentionally in that way. That if we offer every moment to Him and we remain in prayer with Him and we remain in contact with Him all the time, then we can know more and more and more of the love of God, the mercy of God, and the blessing of God. But it requires us to, to intentionally make that decision. To say, I place myself 100% in you. That when I go to work, I want you to be there with me and I want you to open my eyes to the possibilities that I can encourage someone, I can lift someone up, I can share the gospel with them or that they can do those things for me. Because we all need to be gospeled all the time. And, and then when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the gym, when you go wherever it is you go, I guarantee you that if you give it up to him, then it opens up your heart to the possibilities of the moment. And so to use that that psychological term that's been so popular lately it, we can live life mindfully and that's the way we're intended to live we're intended to live that way doesn't mean god won't surprise us a million times along the way but you'll get more opportunities and you'll get to see more of him if you chase hard after him all the time and I'm going to end up with Paul's prayer today from this Ephesians passage. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.